Our second reading of the Word of God is taken this morning from the book of Galatians, chapter uh, four's last verse, and going into chapter five down to the twelfth verse. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. This is the word of the Lord. As we cross over into chapter 5, we are crossing a, a, a boundary line in the Apostle's thought. In almost every letter Paul writes, now not in every letter because no human being is a robot that does things exactly the same every time, But in almost every letter that Paul writes, the first part of the letter is, thus we believe, and it's doctrinal. It teaches you who God is and spiritual principles and and the outworking of the grace of God in Christ. And then the other part of the letter is, since this we believe, then thus we should do. And that is how this breaks down. As you cross into chapter 5, you begin to hear about how a Christian should walk and live. And verse 1 is the transition, and its language is very, very significant. Stand fast, therefore, in freedom. Do not be entangled again in the yoke of slavery. What do all these terms really mean? Well, anyone who has uh, served any time in the military would know very well what the term stand fast means. It means you are going to be attacked. In fact, you may be being attacked this very moment. And you know what I want you to do? I want you to stand right where you are and keep it from happening. I want you to stand in the gap. I want you to fight the battle. I want you to not retreat. I don't want you to move. I want you to stand in harm's way and fight. The word stand fast 
talk about the fact that we are the church militant. As long as we are in this cursed world, uh, we're at war. There is a war taking place, and Paul has been describing the nature of the battle that these believers are in. It has come from false teachers teaching them to rely upon works, to not rely upon grace. Paul looks at them and says, I want you to stand fast. I want you to resist this with all your might. You are at war. I want you to defeat it. The enemy is the world. The enemy is the flesh. The enemy is the devil. These three great enemies of of God, they are bringing this attack against you. Stand fast. And stand fast specifically, therefore. Now, one wag has said that if you see the word therefore in Scripture, you should always ask yourself, what is it therefore? And that's not actually a bad idea. The word therefore implies causality. Something has taken place, therefore, what comes next is what ought to happen, what you ought to do. Well, what does therefore refer to? Well, the closest connection is the last verse of chapter 4, which is why I read it. You're not born of the slave woman. You're born of the free woman. That's who you are. Uh, Since that's who you are, there's a certain uh, way you ought to walk. Therefore, stand fast. Don't be trapped in slavery. Walk in liberty. The word therefore, though, It really functions even bigger than that, though. When using the term, therefore, Paul is actually calling us back to everything he's already said. And one of the most significant things that Paul said, he said right at the beginning of the book. In the first couple verses in chapter 1, well, really, chapter 3 to to 5, he said this. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's really the gospel. It's it's a summary of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul began the letter right out of the gate, reminding the Galatians of something that had already happened. It was not something that was going to happen. It was something that had already happened, and they could take it to the bank. That is, that Jesus the Christ had come from the Father. The Father had sent him. And that's very significant, because we we very often picture... Jesus standing between a wrathful God and ourselves, and the Father really wants to obliterate us. He is filled with wrath. We are sinful beings. He wants to let loose his wrath and eliminate all that. And Jesus says, no, no, Father, even though you really want to to do them in, I will stand for them. Well, that's not the way that the apostle presents it. God is a wrathful God. He hates sin. But God wants Christ to give himself for us. It is the desire of the Father's heart to save sinful men. 
the only way to do that is through God the Son giving himself for our sins. God the Father sends his Son because it is God the Father's rescue mission. The Father loves his chosen. He sends the Son. The Son has already come. The Son has come. The Son has given himself. It's already happened. This has delivered us from this present evil age. You were in it. I was in it. We walked in this present evil age. We were enmeshed in it. But the Son has already saved us from it. We're in it still, but not like we used to be. The power of God has separated us from the world in a very real way. We're no longer comfortable in this world. We have been saved out of it. This present evil age is passing away, but we are not. Our bodies are passing away, but we are not passing away. We are given by Christ reconciliation with the Father. By Christ, our hope is assured. Uh, Glory be to Christ for endless ages because the fruit of what Christ has done will continue through endless ages. And what is the fruit of what Christ has done? It's you and me, if we're redeemed, we will exist for endless ages, and we will give glory to Christ, we will give glory to his Father, because the work of reconciliation is already done. Those who are preaching to these Christian churches that works are required for reconciliation are effectively saying the reconciliation isn't done yet. You have got to contribute your part. God has contributed his part, but it's not quite done yet. You have got to be reconciled to the Father by what you do. And Paul says, stand fast against that, therefore, because it's already done. The Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us. To depend upon Christ, to depend upon the grace of God, to rely upon the gift of faith, Paul says this is freedom, and to trust in human works, Paul says this is slavery. It's very clear that the term freedom is very positive, and slavery is not. I mean, it just hits us out of the, sh- the, the gate. I don't want to be a slave, I'll be free. But remember that Paul is reminding us of how he's used the terms already. Um, What kind of slavery was being under the, the law? What kind of freedom is being in Christ? Well, he's using this language to remind us of what he just said, because it is so important. In chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, Paul has described... Uh, the slavery of being under the law, and all human beings are born into this world under the law, whether they're Jew or Gentile. The law is the standard by which God will judge all men on the last day. Paul began the last chapter saying, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. So this is where Paul's language of slavery and freedom begins. He does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. 
Even so, we, and Paul is talking to Gentiles, Jew and Gentile, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So uh, the law has to do with the primal moral elements of the world, and we were enslaved under that. Well, what kind of slavery was that? Well, dropping down to verse, uh, or actually moving back to chapter 3, verse 23 through 25, it was the kind of slavery that you are under when you are homeschooled by a tutor who is a very, very strict tutor. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the slavery is like being a seven-year-old put under a very strict taskmaster who is there for your good, who is training you in very good things, but you really don't like them, and this is not the kind of relationship that is going to last forever. Someday you will be a free adult, you will have grown up, but right now you are a slave to this teacher, and he bears the yardstick, and he slaps, and he is training you in good things, but you're a slave. If you look at Galatians 4, verse 6 and 7, uh, growing up, is freedom. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, when you were under the tutor, you were uh, intended to be the son. But you were as much like a slave as makes no odds. But you have come to the point where you have matured, you have grown up. You no longer need that taskmaster. You have embraced adulthood. Your father has embraced you. We have come to the time where the father says you're an adult. And it doesn't change you from being under your father. You still cry out to him, Abba, Father, you love him but you're now an adult and your father treats you as a son, that's freedom indeed. And there's been effectively a transfer. You have gone from the law to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to become amazingly important for this, the last third of the book. Paul already uh, introduced the Holy Spirit in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Paul looked at the Galatians and said, you brain-dead Galatians, which is the way it literally can be translated if you wanted to use the colloquial. You you brain-dead, stupid Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, You saw very clearly that Jesus Christ was crucified. I, I just want to ask you one thing. Does God work his miracles among you and give you his Holy Spirit by keeping the works of the law, or does he do it by hearing of faith? And in chapter 3, Paul repeated the concept of the Holy Spirit a number of times, 
Now, as we go into this last section, we're going to hear more about the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. It is the central concept of this last third. And that was one of the reasons when last time I tried to preach through this book, some 15 years ago, maybe even 20, when I got to this section of the book, I couldn't finish it. I was in Iowa. I was in a uh, Presbyterian pulpit. And uh, it was a very strange dynamic in Iowa. The towns of Iowa all have three churches. No matter how big they are, uh, you will find that this town of 200 people has three church buildings. One is the Roman Catholic Church. The other one is the church that everybody in town really is. And it might be the Reformed Church, it might be the Methodist Church, who knows. And then there is the church that the people in it really aren't, but they have become that church because this group of people are mad at people in the other church, and so they had to have somewhere to go to. So while they're all actually Presbyterian, they all became Methodist because they're mad. But that's the, that is the setup in, in Iowa um, you've got these three churches, and they're all usually fairly tepid. They're all kind of mainline churches. They don't really believe much. Well, the backlash against that in Iowa has been a very strong, charismatic Pentecostal movement. When, when people become aware that just because they're going to church, they're not really believers when they get a taste of the goodness that is the Lord, uh, in, in that area of the, the country, it is the Pentecostals who say, come on in, and they introduce them to a very Pentecostal, revivalistic, very mystical kind of Christianity that in the minds of many people there in Iowa, that's the alternative. You're either mainline and you don't really believe much and it's kind of a social club, or you're a Pentecostal and you believe in uh, healing people by laying on of hands, you believe in speaking in tongues, you jump over chairs, that, that's your contradiction. That you're one or the other. And now I'm preaching from a, from a Presbyterian pulpit, and I get to this point, and I don't even really know how to describe the Holy Spirit to my listeners in a way that they will interpret. Because the Holy Spirit, A is very, very real. The Holy Spirit really is the presence of God taking up residence in the believer. The Holy Spirit really, really is an experience of God that, while subjective, is, is absolutely the truth, and if you don't have an experience of the Holy Spirit, uh, you're not in Him. You're, you're not in Christ. But on the other hand, when you look at what the Scripture says about the Spirit, the, the goal of the Spirit in you, crying out, Abba, Father, causing you to worship God, the goal of the Spirit in His fellowship with your Spirit, this very mystical, real thing, is not designed to make you jump over chairs or speak in tongues. It's designed to sanctify you, to cause you to walk as Christ walked, 
the spirit doesn't really care about how good you are at jumping pews. The spirit cares about, do you glorify God in Christ? And so I really was kind of stumped. I didn't know how to present that in that context. Probably could do it now, but it stumped me then. But that is where we are. We are about to look at the Spirit, and the Spirit really is the third person of the Trinity. He really does take up residence in the heart of the believer. You do experience Him, and the fruit of the Spirit, when we get to the next chapter, is going to be such mundane but utterly profound and valuable things as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. That's what the Spirit will produce. Paul is moving back to the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit gives us this freedom in Christ. The Spirit is everything. We are called in this opening verse to not be entangled again in a yoke of slavery. Now, that's a very strange thing to say. The reason why I backed up to show you what Paul means by slavery and freedom is it's very clear that Paul means being a child and not relating on an adult level spiritually. And freedom is having grown up, matured, becoming free, living as a spiritual adult. Well, if it's a matter of having grown up, uh, how do you... How do you once again become yoked by your childhood? Now, uh, there are some people who would like to have that happen. There are memes on the internet that say, I have decided I no longer want to be an adult. If you want to find me, I will be in a, in a blanket fort in the living room with the cookies. But there is a transition from childhood to adult. There are changes that happen that you can't undo. And in reality, you shouldn't want to undo them. The the goal of childhood is to become an adult. So if you become an adult, how can you become yoked again by childhood? Well, there may be two things going on here. The first one is, if your spouse looks at you and says, stop being a child, he is not actually saying you have reverted to being 13, he is saying you're acting like you're 13. And that may be the nature of Paul's language. It is possible for an adult to live childishly. And it is an ugly, ugly thing. And we all have known adults who honestly, you'd swear they're 12. So when Paul says, don't be yoked again into this slavery, he may be saying, if you, if you want to, to try to relate to God again by, by works, uh, spiritually you're sucking your thumb and you're going back to playing with your yo-yo. And you need to knock it off. It's embarrassing, all of us. But it's also possible that in his language, uh, Paul is reflecting the difficulty that comes from addressing the visible church. When I use the term visible church, if you've been a Reformed Christian for more than a year, you know what I'm talking about. You know that there is an invisible church made up of believers. Believers are those who have faith in Jesus Christ 
they are the real true church if they believe. But you and I can't see that. God sees it. God can see, believe or not. I don't see that. I just see people. You know, you guys have gathered. You're here. Uh, most of you are on the rolls of New Hope Reformed Church. You are the visible church, and it's important that you're part of the visible church. Uh, it's even the call of the Spirit that you be part of the church. But does being part of the visible church mean that you really are a believer? Well, we've already seen in this very book that the answer is no. Back in chapter 2 of Galatians, in verse 3 and 4, Paul was talking about these false teachers, and he said when, when he had come to Jerusalem, he had brought Titus with him, um, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and this occurred, so there were people who were wanting that to happen, and this occurred <clears throat> because false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So Paul in chapter 2 told us, in the very Jerusalem church, there were people who called themselves brethren, and the brothers called them brethren, and they were officially a part of the visible church, and to all the world, they looked like God's people, and when God looked at them, they weren't at all. They were false brethren. They had been snuck into the church by the hand of the devil. They had been brought into the church to do the devil's work. They occupied chairs right next to redeemed people. They might have been elders. They might have been deacons. They might have been ordained to the pastorate. But when God looked at them, he saw, this is not really my church, but when other people looked at them, they saw this is a deacon. And so, if you're going to address all of the visible church, as Paul is doing, the Holy Spirit is leading him to write a letter to all the congregations in Galatia, what can Paul, the human being, see? Well, he can't see whether a man's converted or not. But he can see what a man does, he can see what a man says, or I guess hear it, and to a certain degree, he can in, infer the intents of a man, but that's all fairly subjective compared to what God can see. So when Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, he's writing to men who are saved, who are being trapped by a false doctrine, uh, which will harm them, which will trip them. He is also writing to people who are in good standing in the church and they contribute their tithes and they're not redeemed and this false doctrine will separate them from God forever and Paul has to speak to both of them in the same, same letter. So Paul writes to the visible church, to the Galatian churches, and he says, don't be overcome again by yoke of slavery. That is a message to every person in the church, maybe slightly different depending upon who they are, but... This is a yoke that is being put upon your back. If you are a believer in Christ and the devil confuses you 
and you are brought into a yoke of slavery and you act spiritually immature, well, that's a victory for the devil. And he's going to rejoice in that. He is going to think that's wonderful. If you are in the church and you have not been converted and this false teacher teaching gets a hold of you and you never come to know the grace of God in Christ, that's a victory for the devil and you burn for eternity in hell. Either way, the apostle of Jesus Christ would prefer that not happen. And so he calls upon them not to, to fall back into the yoke of slavery, but to walk in freedom. And he tells them that if you become circumcised, Christ will avail for you not at all. And then about three verses later, he says, now in Jesus Christ, circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't really mean anything. What matters is faith working by love. Now, if I were a liberal, I would like to say, oh, look, here is a contradiction in the Bible. Paul said that if you become circumcised, Christ can't save you. You are cut off from him. And then three verses later says, it doesn't really matter if you're circumcised or not. Is that a contradiction? Well, let's think about it for a second. Circumcision is a sacrament. When a sacrament is embraced in obedience by someone who can embrace it, a promise is being made. If you are a 26-year-old, and you have come under the conviction of the Lord, and uh, you are brought to conversion, and then you are baptized, is that a significant moment or not? Well, I would say it's kind of significant, because you are making a promise in baptism that you will belong to Jesus Christ. Baptism isn't what magically saves you, but baptism symbolizes the covenant, and you are telling the Lord in action, and you're telling everybody around you, I am embracing this because it is my promise. I am saying I will die to the world and live to Christ. Paul is circumcised. Every apostle of Jesus Christ has been circumcised. Every Jew who has come to faith in Christ is circumcised, but that is all prior to the gospel reaching them. They will go to heaven. They're belonging to Christ because they have faith in him. But you Galatians, what are you saying if you submit to the false teachers who say, now, to be in in Christ, you have to be circumcised? Well, you're saying something very significant. You're saying, I agree with them. You are making a promise that you will walk according to the law of God to be saved by the law. I am making a promise to God that I will walk in the law to be redeemed. You're promising that to those around you. And more importantly, you're promising God. Now, who here would like to look into the face of Almighty God and make him a promise saying, Lord, I will walk before you in perfection. You have given me a moral law, and it is holy, righteous, and good. It's not bad at all, and I am going to walk in it. I promise you that I will walk in the law of God, and that 
will be our relationship. Anybody think that's a good idea? That's about as bad as you can think of. And that is what would be happening if they embrace circumcision. There's a line in the sand that's being drawn, and it's sacramental. When you come to the table, you're not being saved by the table, but you are saying to the world, and you're saying to God, I am in fellowship with you. Well, when these people come to circumcision, they're saying, I'm going to walk in the law and relate to God. And Paul says, if you make that promise, you're going to stand by it. It's very much like the rich young ruler. In the Gospels, there is an account where a young man with lots of money says, I want to follow you, Christ. And Christ says, that'd be great. What you need to do is you need to give up all your possessions, give them all to the poor, and come follow me. Well, uh, Christ didn't say it to anybody else, but he said it to him. Well, why is it said to him? Well, it's because his possessions were what were between him and Christ. That was the line in the sand he needed to cross, and he wasn't willing to do it. Here, the line in the sand is making the promise of circumcision. You cross that line, and you have walked past Christ, back into the world, and Christ will not avail for you because you're not in Christ. If you relate to God by law, you must keep the whole law. Did you hear what Paul said? And I remind every man that if you, if you receive circumcision, you are a debtor to keep the whole law. There is nowhere in the scripture where there is a third way of covenantally relating to God. As we saw last Lord's Day, there are two covenants. There is the covenant of works. You can call it the covenant of life if you want. I think it's a little silly, but whatever you want to do. Covenant of works, and there is the covenant of grace. In the covenant of works, a, a most holy law of goodness. There is nothing evil in the moral law at all. A law of moral goodness is placed before you, and in this covenant, you will walk it, and you will walk all of it. The other covenant is Jesus Christ has walked that path. He has walked it perfectly, and you are united to him by faith. You are in him in the eyes of the Father, the Father will look at Jesus Christ when he looks at you and will say, this is my Son who has walked in all perfection, I will receive him. Those are the only two covenants in Scripture at all. There are other covenants, but they are aspects of one of these covenants. These are the overarching structures. These are the only way you can relate to God there is in Scripture no covenant where God contributes his part and you contribute yours. And that is what the Apostle is saying. I am reminding you, if you receive circumcision, if you make a promise to God, 
that you will relate to him by the law, that's what you'll do. There's no grace in that. There's no faith in that. Paul has already made that, that distinction. The law is not of faith, and faith is not of the law. If you make yourself a debtor to works to be reconciled to God, it ain't no halfway. It is all the way. There's no other choice. And then Paul says that if you take that way, you have, quote, fallen from grace. What's that language mean? If I were a a Wesleyan holiness minister, I would assume that the language means uh, you were in grace, God had given grace to you, and you have stepped out of that grace, you have fallen out of that grace, you were in a state of grace, you are not now, uh, to use the colloquial, you have lost your salvation. And I can see where they, they would, in fact, view it that way. You know, if you just read it, it could sound like that. Is that what is being said? When I was in Bible college 30 years ago and counting, uh, this, this phrase, when I began to really study the concept of the grace of God, this biblical phrase, it's right here in Galatians, bothered me a lot. Because everything else I was, was reading suggested that salvation was totally of the Lord. The Lord held you in his hand. The Lord wouldn't let you go. The Lord chose his elect, even though his elect may backslide. Uh, the Lord has your salvation from first to last. And then here is this phrase written by the apostle, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that you have fallen from grace. So what do we make of that? I was, I was in my Greek classes, and I, I got out my Greek New Testament, and I looked at, at, at the, the, the verse in the Greek, and I began to wonder, is this the only place where this phrase is found in the Bible? Because it might not be, and it might be that if it's used more than once, if you look at the context that they're in, maybe we'll understand what it means. Well, I got out my Greek dictionary, and, and I looked for the phrase, and I found the exact same construction elsewhere in the New Testament. I found it in John chapter 18, specifically John chapter 18, verse 4 through 6. Now, in the English, it does not translate it as... Uh, fallen from exactly, and that's okay because uh, the, the, the translator wants to give you a, a visual picture of what's happening, but in the original Greek, the, the, the word construction is the exact same thing. We are in chapter 18 of the Gospel of John, and we're in verse 4 through 6, and this is what we read. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. And this is the important verse. Now when he said to them, I am he, 
they drew back and fell to the ground. And then it goes on, you know, he asked them again whom we were seeking. They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He tells them, I am he. They're picking themselves up from the ground. It's very clear that Jesus has literally used supernatural power and knocked them over. But nevertheless, they're going to come and take him, you know. The, the, the image is ludicrous, but the Greek construction is there in verse 6. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell away from him. That, that's, that's what the Greek literally says. Did they have Christ at that point? Had they seized him and now uh, they're, they're letting him go? John the Apostle is clearly showing us that Jesus of Nazareth was not taken by force. A large body of soldiers, both Roman and Jewish, had come out to seize him. And when people ask him who he is, and he merely says his name, they literally roll down the hill in all directions. So it is clear in history, Jesus Christ did not get overwhelmed and taken to the cross. Just like Paul said in chapter 1 of Galatians, he gave himself for our sins. They fell away from his power. They fell away from his glory. They fell away from the Son of God. They were repulsed spiritually from him. And it's the exact same construction in both books. So what happens if you embrace works righteousness and you make a promise to God, I'm going to live perfectly before you because I'm going to be a holy man and I'm going to earn heaven. Well, you have fallen away from grace, you have been repulsed by the whole idea. And when I saw that, I realized that's what what Paul is saying. He's writing to people who are deciding between grace or works, and there are people who are going to be repulsed, sickened by, driven away from the concept of grace. Uh, as a number of you know, and you've heard this story before, but it's important. Uh, I have a good friend. Uh, he's an Armenian preacher, Christian church guy. We were, we were having lunch years ago, and this Armenian man uh, looked at me and said, You know, Pastor Russ, you're a preacher of grace. You're reformed. That, that's, that's what you guys do. And you're going to go out and you're going to preach to men that God, through Christ, has forgiven their sins. And you think people are going to appreciate that message. They're going to embrace that message. They're going to be glad you told them that. And let me assure you, that's not what's going to happen. Men are going to hate you for saying that. Because men hate grace. Grace says, I am such a sinner and God is such a holy God that I cannot, by my effort, in any way appease his holiness. I am a wretch such as I, as the song says. And if God reconciles me to himself, he has to do it in such a way that I don't play into the equation, and men will hate you, said Steve Patterson, who, strangely, as an Armenian preacher, often preaches grace. I don't understand him at all. But his 
his, his, his advice has stood with me for a good 25 years, and he's right. The flesh is repulsed by the message, God is willing to reconcile you by his act, by his grace. He doesn't help you crawl into heaven. He picks you up and carries you there because only he can get you there. Paul says, you know what? If you turn away from grace, if you're repulsed by that idea, there is nothing for you in Jesus Christ at all. Nothing. You have fallen away from grace. You've been repulsed by it. Now, uh, a question could be asked, if this is the Christian gospel that God saves by grace and not by works, doesn't this mean that you're saying, let us continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, the entire second half of this sermon is about that, and it is literally the second half of the sermon, and that would mean we'd be getting done about one. So next Lord's Day, we will go into that. Paul turns his attention to that, but let me just finish with saying the apostles say nothing at all that ever, rightly understood, encourages sin. Nothing. 